This is Framework Leadership. I'm Ken Tingle, and you're listening to Framework Leadership, a podcast about how to bring your personal life and organization to the next level. Today, wow, we're privileged to sit down with Carrie Newhoff. Carrie is the teaching founding pastor of Connexus Church in Barrie, Ontario, Canada. He's renowned author of many great books, including uh, his latest release, Didn't See It Coming. In his spare time, Kerry speaks to church leaders around the world about leadership change and personal growth. He writes one of today's most widely read church leadership blogs and hosts the top-rated Kerry Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's a pleasure to welcome you to the cast, Kerry. Great to be here. Thank you. Hey, let's just uh, jump right into some background. I mean, you started your career in law, and I think it was in 1995 that you began serving in full-time ministry. Talk about that transition, that moment you 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 first felt, you know, I, I want to do this ministry thing and kind of <laughs> step out. And uh, what did that shift look like? I wish I could say I wanted to do ministry, but it never occurred to me. Like I grew up in the church, always went to church. And even as a late teenager, kind of fell away a little bit, but like never really wanted to. I wanted to end up on the right side of eternity. Uh, and then as an aspiring attorney, a lawyer, uh, rededicated my life to Christ, went to law school. Mm. But it was really a supernatural experience. I had, you know, still went to church, loved the church, thought it was important, but never occurred to me. I would do marketing. I have a degree in history, so I thought, oh, maybe I'll lecture if law doesn't work out. But I love law. But it was between um, first and second year law that I had a vision of myself one day as a lawyer at age 44, 20 years in the future. So I was 24 at the time. And I saw myself 20 years in the future, and I was wildly successful and morally bankrupt. Mm. And for whatever reason, in that moment, I felt like the meaning of that moment to me was, okay, you're not going to practice law. And then uh, I left that office in the law firm, went to the library, started just staring out of the window, going, oh my gosh, what is going on? And I could see the church I grew up in down the road. And uh, I felt this, like, you know, and I don't hear voices from God every day, but I heard this prompting that said, you should be in there. And that was the beginning. It's a much longer story, but that was the beginning of, am I being called to ministry? So yeah, I would say I was uh, conscripted, but not, I didn't volunteer. <laughs> hey, uh, a lot of people might not know this, but you had a job in radio actually before, before law school. And, you know, when you think about that job, what are some of the skills that you learned in that job that you actually utilize today in a pretty significant way? It's really interesting. Um, I was just talking about this with my team. They didn't know this story, but I started in radio when I was 16. And that was something I wanted to do. Walked into the radio station, said, hire me. Now, it wasn't a big radio station, but they did. I ended up working in Toronto at a, at a bigger station down the road. But um, I learned so much. First of all, they gave me the worst shift. Like, think about <laughs> right. leadership. So they gave me Saturday and Sunday night. And I'm pretty driven. So even at 16, I asked my boss, the program director, I'm like, so how many listeners uh, do I have on Saturday night? And he said, you have lines. I said, what do you mean lines? And right. he said, if there are fewer than 50 people listening, they just put a line in there. <laughs> so I had, I had like nobody listening. And then, you know, I got into it and I, you know, as a teenager, I liked all the top music and they had a, a back then it was record still. So you had this color coding system. It was like green, blue, white, red, black. And at the top of the hour, there were clocks for every hour. You played a blue record. And whatever was the first record in the bin, you played. And I'm like, well, this is why nobody's listening. This music is horrible. Right, right. So it was Saturday night. There was, everybody else was home. I went into the library and saw that they had all the good music. 
like this was back in the 80s, so they had like Talk Talk and Michael sure, Jackson. Yeah, yeah. And I just pulled those records out and started playing them, hoping I wouldn't get fired. Anyway, we went to number one. We became wow. the number one uh, show. And, and that's another, you know, there's a good leadership principle. If you're successful and you break all the rules, they probably are not going to fire you. Right. So, so good that was, those were some things I learned is that if this is really bad, um, it's probably for a reason, and you can actually change the format. Right. And once the ratings came out, my bosses loved me and all my coworkers hated me because they didn't have permission to do what I did on Saturday night. You founded, uh, as we uh, kind of fast forward in, in, in your career, you founded Connexus Church with your wife, Tony. Uh, tell me, what was it like to start a church? Hmm. You're, you're stepping into, you know, really, I, I would suppose a brand new phase of ministry in your life. Mm-hmm. What was that like? It was a really uh, very challenging time. Um, so I'm a visionary. And I, I think this is probably true of just about everything I've done. I should be a better student of what's ahead. Mm. But we just kind of, I, we had been part of a church for 12 years that was part of a mainline denomination that was actually in decline. So we said, why don't we start over again and become a non-denominational church? And so we'd had a 96% vote to de-denominationalize, if that's a word. I just made that up. <laughs> and so we did. We we stepped out of the denomination, but it was a rocket ride. I mean, we went from a paid-for building that was, we had just built four years earlier. We had to leave that behind because the denomination claimed ownership, which they were legally entitled to do. We tried to buy it for them, from them, and they, they didn't want to sell it. So we started over again. We launched two portable locations within a week of each other, and it was a meat grinder. I mean, it was, it was just crazy, but it was the, like, the vision was very clear. We just want to reach unchurched people. Uh, the, the methods just about killed us because mm-hmm. to launch, like we had to buy all this gear. We launched in a blizzard, you know, it's north of Toronto. So it was, it, it just about killed us. And then in the first 18 months, we launched with 800 people, which was about what we were seeing in the Presbyterian church that I was a part of. But in the first 18 months, it had dwindled down to about 350, 400 people. And so that was just like super, super demoralizing. And it was the only time in leadership I thought, oh, you know what, this could fail. So we, why, do you think, why do you think it did drop like that so? Well, we really made it about reaching unchurched people. Okay. okay. If you scratch beneath the veneer of a lot of churches, we all say we want to reach unchurched right, people. Right. But a lot of it is around making members comfortable. And I hadn't ever intentionally done that. But, you know, I heard another church leader say, if you grow the greenest grass in town, you're going to get a lot of sheep. So for a season, we were the greenest grass in town. Mm-hmm. It was a younger preacher. You know, we back in the early 2000s, contemporary worship was still a novelty. A lot of churches were stuck in the in-between. We were kind of leading the way there. We were always a very technical church, so we had projectors while everybody else was still using hymn books, all that stuff. And so I think we were the leader, but then we said, no, 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 this isn't just for you. This is for you and your friends. And we really drew a line in the sand and said, hey, we are going to make this about reaching unchurched people. That was a dividing line for some. But then there was honestly just like you move from a brand new state-of-the-art building that we would give tours of to a couple of local movie theaters because those were the only options available to us. And I mean, we had to hire our own cleaners. The the movie theater had cleaners, but within a few months we're hiring our own cleaners because if you get a whole lot of soda on the floor, like your feet stick to the floor Sunday morning at 8.30 in the morning. And so it was not sexy. It wasn't, 
wasn't exciting anymore. It was new, but it wasn't improved. And I think a lot of people just went, this is too hard. And maybe, you know, uh, the other thing we did was uh, the church that we had built when I was part of a denomination was sort of between two cities. It's, it's the weirdest anomaly. It's just a church that grew like crazy in the country. But then we moved to a city to the north and a city to the south, and it made people choose where to go. And I thought people would behave geographically. People behaved, um, they behave relationally. So it'd be like, well, where are you going, Kent? Okay, well, he's going south, but we live north. Oh, maybe we just won't go anywhere. And so I think there were so many factors there. But we just drew a line in the sand in the spring of 09 when we were 18 months into it and sort of at our lowest. And there were a few thousand dollars left in the bank and that was it. And we couldn't get a loan. Like, uh, you know, well, we're just going to be about unchurched people. And if the church deserves to die, it deserves to die. And, you know, that was 10 years ago. Now we're 1,500 people, three locations, and three or 4,000 people call our church home. And most of them are formerly unchurched. So pretty thrilled with the way it worked out. And how, you know, in reaching, so the focus is absolutely reaching unchurched. Now that, sh- that there's going to be shifts, cultural shifts in, in time and oh, process. Yeah. So how, what was your framing process to, to be absolutely contextually relevant in making sure you're hitting the focus target? See, and that's, you do this anything for 25 years. What worked in the 90s didn't work in the 2000s. What worked in the 2000s changed in the 10s. And here we are in the 2020s. You're absolutely right. So, I mean, the as hard as it was to change three historic dying churches into something remotely contemporary wasn't that difficult. I mean, it was obvious. If you if you had half a leadership bone in your body, you knew that sure. the methods of the mid-20th century were not going to take us into the 21st. Um, but then you get to the point where, oh, now we've we've done that for a decade. It doesn't work anymore. Right. What are we going to do? And then as a leader, you're usually calling that before the change happens. So what happens is you become successful and all the methods that brought you success, so you talk about the framing process, uh, they would probably keep going another three or four years, but as a leader, if you're smart, you smell the cultural changes and you've got to change before the change is necessary. The reason so many organizations and churches go into decline is because one day they look around and go, well, we're 50% smaller than we were five years ago. I guess we should change. Well, by that point, it almost might be too late. So I think one of the greatest challenges has been I have to call it before anybody else sees it. Mm. And so what we've been doing, we did a tractional church like most churches did, and it was tremendously effective. But about five or six years ago, I started to notice Oh, this isn't this isn't as effective anymore. And then um, we started to move, believe it or not, to a more experiential service, almost more charismatic, not just in theo- theology but in expression. Uh, because information, you think about what's happened, and this is one of the trends I see for future churches and anyone who produces content. Uh, a decade ago, content was scarce, mm-hmm. like. There were a few podcasts out there, but now they're, they're you know, we'll probably cross the million mark right. in number of podcasts. And the average podcast has 300 downloads, but that's irrelevant. I mean, podcasts are everywhere. The content you used to have to go to church for to hear is now free. At first it was cassette ministry, then it was CDs. Well, now it's streaming and it's free. Like, it's not an economic model, not that it ever should have been. But, um, you know, if I don't go to your church, I can go listen to Stephen Furtick or Levi right, Lusco right. or Beth Moore or whoever I want to. So this idea that we've got to get people in a building to hear a message that you won't hear elsewise 
disappeared in the last decade. So now, why would, why would somebody, and this is the big challenge I think a lot of church leaders are facing, why would someone drive, uh, you know, inconvenience themselves, drive all the way to a building to get a downloadable experience that they could have gotten in bed or on the treadmill right. or at the cottage yeah. on the weekend? It's really good. Well, it's like, okay, well, we have worship, yeah, but also music now streams. You don't even have to buy the latest Bethel. You don't have to buy the latest Hillsong. You can just stream it for right. $9.99 a month or whatever that costs. So, you know, it's super, it's super challenging. So the whole model has shifted. It's exactly what all the retailers are struggling with. It's like, why am I going to go to your store when I can get it on Amazon and I can get it $10 cheaper? So I think one of the, the shifts we're in the middle of right now is, well, of course, the church is not a product. The church is an experience of the body of Christ. But so what we're experimenting with is more moments in worship where we actually create space just for God to move and for people to connect with God. That's being a little more intentional about prayer, um, making the songs, maybe doing fewer of them, but making them longer with intentional bridges. Our culture is so noisy, people don't have time to rest. People don't have time to think. They don't have time to breathe. So we're making our experiences more of an experience and less of a content show with a couple of quick songs. And that seems to really, I mean, we just hit a record January um, again in our church and tons of unchurched people running out of chairs. And it's, it's a great problem to have. But I think, you know, when we started making those changes, people were like, you don't need to change. You're still growing. Right, it's right. like, yeah, but, but, but if you, you, you have to get right, ahead of it. You right. got to see where culture is going and be there. Otherwise, you know, you're five years of decline and you're like, well, maybe we should try. You, you mentioned culture is so noisy. Um, recently, you tweeted, if you're winning at work but losing at home, you're losing. Uh, what's one piece of advice you'd give to someone balancing both family and work in this noisy culture? Your family is more important. And that's really hard for me to say. I might not have gotten those words out of my mouth when I was in my 30s or early 40s, but at a different stage in life, my wife and I will be married 30 years. Our boys are in their 20s. And I, I see now, looking back, when I was a young leader in my 30s that first decade, um, I made some bad choices just in terms of throwing more of myself into work, which is really confusing when your work is ministry because you think that not working is unfaithfulness. Right. So I had to like untangle all that stuff and all the, the crazy associated with that. And, um, you know, I, I would just say pay more attention to home. There were, there were a couple of moments. I remember when we opened our first new building. This was in 03, so I'd been at it for eight years. And my wife, Tony was in the front row and she was crying, but they weren't good tears. They were, they were tears of, I lost my husband for a year on this building project. And we just, we just saw that. That was probably the low point of our marriage. Now, we've been through another building project. We've been through multiple milestones together, book launches, you know, huge milestones. And I just said, honey, like, I want the tears in the front row to be good tears, not bad tears. Mm -hmm. And we've had some really good, good tears moments. And, you know, even building relationships with your kids, um, now they're in their 20s. Like, we don't, we don't fund their tuition anymore. We don't give them allowance anymore. They're, but, you know, I got an accountant and an engineer in the family. And the only thing you have left is relationship. And that shouldn't be a surprise right, right. if you're a Christian. Like, of course, it's all about relationship. But I miss that. In the drivenness, I miss that. 
And so there's been a little bit of redemptive action in the last 15 years, but I would love to get those those days back in my 30s. And and in the drivenness, uh, mm-hmm. on one of your recent podcasts, you interviewed John Mark Comer, uh, and you spoke about the eliminating about eliminating hurry mm-hmm. in, in, in your life. Um, and obviously, this is a busy, chaotic world that and, and culture that we live in. How 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 do you really take time to slow down? Especially mm. those of us who are driven and, and yeah. uh, you know. It's, it's tough. And I learned it the hard way because my learnings came out of a season of burnout. Uh, I burned out in 06. So that was 14 years ago. And it was, you know, brutal. And so I've done a few things. I'm still extremely driven. And what's weird is uh, I'll tell you what was wrong. In my 30s, I equated more people and more opportunity with more hours. And that that is a losing game mm. because you're human, you're not a robot. There's only 24 hours in a day, even if you worked all 24 of them, um, <laughs> which you can't, you, you still, you, you have limits. And so I did a couple of things that really helped. One was um, I started taking sleep more seriously, which is which sounds like the opposite, right? The old stereotype is, I only need four hours right, of sleep a right, night. Right. You know, I'm a machine. If you look at high-performing athletes, anything from golf to swimming to football or soccer or cyclists, um, often the demands on your body are so strong in in elite um, athletics that some of those, like Michael Phelps, I think, slept 12 hours a night. Mm. And what that is is your body is regenerating and restoring. And so I've taken sleep a lot more seriously to the point where I am now up to eight or nine hours uh, sleep at night. And it's game-changing, game-changing for me because you're sharper. There's a law, I forget the name for it. It's in the book I'm writing, but it's called uh, McDougal's Law. It's not, that's not the right one, but it's like work expands to fill the time available to do it in. So if you say, you know, we got all morning to do this podcast, then we could do 72 takes and spend all morning doing the podcast. If you're like, we're in and out in 40 minutes, we're in and out in 40 minutes. That's not always true, but it's largely true. Another thing that I do is I leverage early mornings. Okay. And so I'm, I am a morning person, even though I'm sleeping in a little more, I'll get up by six at the latest most days. And I don't take any meetings for the first four or five hours of the day. And the reason now, if I'm on the road like this, it's going to be an exception. But the reason I do that is uh, I'm my sharpest. My energy is the highest in the morning. So if I'm doing a breakfast meeting, and you, like me, have probably done thousands of breakfast meetings, by the time you go, you eat your bacon and eggs or whatever you're having, you come back to the office, it's 9, 9.30. My most productive window is almost evaporated. Mm. And my most important activity is actually communication. I'm a podcaster. I'm a writer. I'm a thinker. I'm a, you know, an author. And so when I'm working on a new talk, working on a new sermon, working on a new series, working on a new blog post— if I write from 7 to 10 a.m., I will be way more effective and way more productive than if I write from 2 to 5 p.m. Right. where I'm trying to pick my head up off the desk. So those are some things that I've done. It's a lot more complicated than that, but managing my energy and my time and then learning just to say no. And ironically, by doing less, you can accomplish a lot more. So I'm working fewer hours now than I did before I burned out, but I'm probably producing 5 to 10x what I did when I was working more hours, which is weird. You know, you, you uh, leadership, I mean, you're, you're a gifted leader and your voice is powerful in helping us to really um, 
wrestle with the concepts of leadership. You know, from radio to law to to ministry, uh, you've uh, you've been in strong leadership roles and you've encountered many leaders. Uh, what's the one piece of leadership advice that you've held on to your entire life that mm. this is this is kind of the thing that drives my leadership mentality? I think it's probably this single line: live in a way today that will help you thrive tomorrow. Mm. So many leaders are just exhausted. And I can imagine a lot of the leaders listening are like, I'm too tired to try anything new. Or they're just in, in, in a place. And I really believe from a spiritual perspective, and, but also from a, a, a leadership perspective, that God doesn't want us just to survive. Like if you look at John 10, 10, I've come to bring life, you know, and life to the full. The thief comes to kill and destroy. You can do leadership, so it basically kills and destroys. And there are countless families that have been wiped out because of leadership. And that's where that line, you know, if you're winning at home, uh, winning at work, but losing at home, you're losing. I learned that the hard way. And I didn't lose my family. You know, we're still married. Uh, and we and now actually have a great marriage. But I, I almost blew it. And so I have reminded myself since burnout in all the different categories. I think there's five big ones. Um, spiritual emotional, relational, financial, and physical. Mm. So I ignored my physical body. I can tell you're in shape, you work out, right? You gotta protect the asset. Yeah. You've, you've got to spiritually fill your tank with God. So even though I have a full day today and a lot going on in my company, uh, I, I read the Bible today and I spent some time with God. Maybe not as long as when I'm not on the road, but you know, there are a good 15 minutes where I try to ground myself in the root of Christ. And then relationally, to have rich relationships with people around you. Yeah. Uh, that's so important. Because often in leadership, you're in a giving right, place. Right, right. You're always like, oh, this, you know, you probably had this thought. What does this person want from me? Because the only people who show up at your office are people who want something from you. Well, who are the people who are refueling you? Right. When was the last time you had a dinner where you laughed so hard you cried? Yeah. Or you lost track of the time and you're like, this was five hours? Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, how did that happen? And a lot of leaders don't have that in their life. And I think we're supposed to have that. Um, and that's not being selfish. See, because if, if you don't take care of yourself, right? Self-sacrifice without self-care goes in two very pathological directions. It goes towards self-indulgence mm -hmm. or self-medication. So you become that quirky person who just like has way too much more than you need, or you become very weird in your habits, you become self-indulgent and very selfish, or you start to self-medicate. And that's alcohol, drugs, sex, whatever. But if you're not caring for yourself, if you don't have those replenishing friendships, and then financial, you know, just to have a little bit of margin. I've lived with money and without it, it's better with it. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you can, we all know people, and this is not about becoming rich. There are people who make 30000 a year and have money in the bank, and people who make $300,000 a year and have maxed out credit cards. Yeah. And so I think when you get margin in the spiritual, financial, physical, relational, and emotional, the emotional tank, um, how, how is it in your soul? Um, how is it, you know, how are you leading? What is the quality of your leadership? That emotional intelligence. When you have surplus in all those areas, and, and I have to have disciplines in my life every day that help me have it in all five areas so that I live in a way today that will help me thrive tomorrow. Yeah, so good. 
couple more questions, and mm-hmm. then we'll uh, close this out with our quick fire round that I always ask uh, every guest as we close this out. Uh, I, I, I did want to ask you about a, a recent Instagram post. You talked about the new number one re- reason that leaders leave organizations, uh, and, and it was about a lack of freedom. Tell me, why, why do you believe this shift has occurred? I think it's occurring. It's really interesting because I do my podcast like you do, and you do it through the auspices of a major institution. But I started as a side hobby in my basement. Ten and a half million downloads later in five years, I'm like, how did that happen? But the world got flat, right? It got really flat really fast. And that has, and also social media and the internet has opened up the eyes, raising two 20-year-olds, and you're surrounded by 20-year-olds here at the university, uh, people realize, like when you think about when you and I graduated, it was like you had to pick a channel, like, okay, I'm going to do law, you're going to do this, you know, whatever. And then it was based on who you know, like a lot of people didn't move for work. And now we can see the world and we go, oh, I got a million options, which can create paralysis, but it also creates freedom. So if I don't like, if you hire me and I don't like working for you, if I'm gifted in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I'm just going to do my own thing. Now, 70% of all businesses fail in the first five years. 70% of all church plants fail in the first five years. But that doesn't stop people from trying. And so I think there's a talent war. By 2023, I think 50% of people will at some level participate in the gig economy mm-hmm. where they do some work for themselves. So I think one of the things that, that, that also is happening, this is, I'll make this answer as short as I can, is same thing as church 10 years ago was, well, if you want to hear the message, you have to be here or buy the CD. Work was, well, you have to be here because like the microphones are here and the computer is here and the server is here and the files are here. Like when I was in law, if you brought a file home, you literally brought a file home. It wasn't digital. It was like, you lose that thing, you get fired. But, you know, you brought a file home. Now, I, I, can, I can run my company off my phone. You can pretty much run the university off your phone. Right. And everybody can. So what happened is the geographical necessity of being in the office from eight to four isn't what it was even a decade ago. Younger leaders get it. And, and that's why their tolerance level is down. And they're like, well, why do I have to be in at eight? And why do I have to stay till four? And so it's an older mindset that I think is changing in the workplace. And then a lot of people who are older Gen Xers or boomers are like, I can't keep young workers engaged. And then they freak out because they're like, I don't even know, okay, you're at a coffee shop. Like, are you actually doing work? I I don't know. How, How can I tell? So I think it's a whole new management paradigm. And so what I've done, both at the church and then in my own company, which does the podcast, the books, the speaking, and all that stuff, is I give my staff an incredible amount of freedom and I try to create a lot, of cult, a lot of good culture, good leadership practices, and I manage according to outcomes, not process. So if you want to do your work at 3 o'clock, standing on your head in yoga pants, I don't care. I need it done really, really well. If you want to drop your kids off or go to their soccer game, awesome. Just make sure the podcast ships on Tuesday right. morning at 12 or 1 a.m. and uh, make sure that you don't drop any balls. So I think we're moving from process-based management, sit there, at that cubicle, do your work. And there'll always be some things that have to be geographically located to outcome-based management, which is we're a diverse, distributed team with flexible hours. And I think the flexible workplace is the future workplace. So that's why I did that post. Outstanding. I I do want to talk about your latest book, Didn't See It Coming. And this book dives into those, you know, curveballs that life throws at you. How to, how to overcome those unexpected obstacles. Tell us a little bit 
about that book, what inspired you. I know you talk about the seven crippling, you know, uh, challenges. Yeah. Well, those were things that that crept up on me in my first decade in leadership. And so I started at 30 because, you know, I did a whole bunch of schooling. So I started a little bit late, but uh, I was optimistic and, you know, hopefully humble and different things like that. And then I, I just found these silent creepers in leadership that almost nobody was talking about that I saw to one extent or another being a factor in me, but then I started to see it in a lot of my friends and colleagues too. So things like cynicism. Mm -hmm. By the time I'm, I'm a reclaimed optimist, I'm extremely optimistic, but like I'd grown very cynical after a decade in leadership or pride, right? Um, insecurity actually is as much a source of pride as narcissism is because if pride is an obsession with self, Insecure people are deeply obsessed with themselves because I can't have this photographer in because he's better than me, so I'm going to take this job and hopefully they'll keep me. Like, like right, it just right, creates yeah. this obsession with self. Um, burnout, which is something I had to go through. Uh, emptiness, I'm very successful. Why doesn't it feel better? So those are the issues I wanted to write about in the book and not only describe them, but also give everyone an antidote to each of the seven issues I identified. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's why I wrote the book, and it's a bit of a personal journey, uh, different, different degrees to each of them. But these are the silent leadership killers. And if you really look at what fells leaders, it's often that stuff. Because you get to a certain level of competence where you just get promoted and promoted and promoted, or you start your own thing, but it's the character implosion that moves you out of leadership, or it's the burnout and the cynicism that just caps your leadership, or it's the pride that makes you really difficult to work with. And so I think when you nail those things and you're like, oh, that's what's going on inside me, that allows you to actually grow your character and deal with the internal demons that allow you to really step into the leadership you were meant to have. Yeah, it's a powerful book. And just want to encourage everybody, if you haven't read it, please pick up a copy or uh, and, and let it just soak into your life. Thank you for, for writing that. Thank hey, we want to close uh, this out with three quick questions. I always ask uh, everybody yeah. on, on the cast. First one is you're, you're, uh, you have a day when your calendar's cleared, you've been mandated by your staff. You've got to have a perfect day off. What does that perfect day off look like? Oh, it's probably summer. Uh, I get up early still, probably do my devotion time, uh, jump on my bike, do probably a two-hour ride, hopefully with my wife or solo, and then we get out on the boat with friends and head out on the lake. We live near a lake, do a day of boating, get back, cook up some ribeyes on the big green egg, sit down, uh, maybe watch a movie or do something fun at night, and that's a pretty that's good, a good, relaxing day. day. Yeah. I love that. Hey, what historical leader, living or dead, would you most like to sit down and have a cup of coffee with? Ah, probably John Calvin. Mm. Interesting. I just want to know why he was so mean. I really like him, but uh, he burned a lot of people uh, at the did. stake. Yeah, yeah. That's like, really, Calvin? Now, I've, I've re I did a thesis on him, but uh, I think he's really interesting. And yeah. he was less Calvinist than most of the Calvinists. Right, right. Which is interesting, right? <laughs> it is. Hey, what's your next big dream you'd like to accomplish? Oh, you know, that's a great question. I would love to help even more leaders. I'm thinking, you know, we have 10 million downloads. Well, what if 100 million people could right, be helped with this? Right. Or, you know, we get over a million people accessing our content every month. It's like, well, what, what does 10 million look like? So, uh, and, and the reason is not just for growth's sake, but so many of the issues that we struggle with, time, energy, priority management, um, emotional health, personal health, living in a way today that will help us thrive tomorrow— they're just epidemic. I fly a lot. I see it on, you know, the leaders in business class who look exhausted. 
and probably aren't making great choices. I see it in the unchurched. I mm-hmm. see it in the church. And I want to see leaders fresh, alive, healthy, and celebrating um, and getting better every decade, yeah, yeah. not worse, right? Like yeah. at 70, you should be better than you were at 50. And at 50, you should be better than you were at 30. And often we see a decline in the, wor- in, in the other direction. So I would love to, in some tiny little way, be part of that reversal. Well, I want to tell you, you are a, uh, a gift from God to all of us in the form of a, uh, of a leadership voice that is encouraging, is challenging. Um, there's no doubt every time I, I spend some time with you, you, you create a sense of relational confidence that is just, mm-hmm. it's just, it's great. And Thanks, I appreciate uh, your voice and thankful that you're a writer and a thinker. And as you said, you're a blogger and, and mm-hmm. So uh, we're, we're, we're needing to hear your voice. So thank you for what you Awfully you're humble to be here. And I got to say, every time I show up at Southeastern University, I think this is my third or fourth time, it just keeps growing. Your, your leadership, I'm like, so you have 7,000 students now? They're like 10. I'm like, wow. <laughs> like, it's just, it's incredible to see the impact. And even being at chapel today to see so many young adults whose hearts are just moving in the right direction is, is so encouraging. Thank so you. thank you. Thank you for having me on. And thank thanks you. for your leadership. Appreciate that. Thank you. Well, for more on Kerry Newhoff and his leadership resources, visit kerrynewhoff.com, kerrynewhoff.com. Thanks again for joining us on Framework Leadership today. To connect with Kent, visit kentingle.com. Also make sure to follow him on Twitter at Kent Ingle and on Facebook at Kent.ingle. Thanks for listening to Framework Leadership.